You can turn with me to Luke 21, please. Luke 21. In 1892, a ship was built named the SS Valencia, and it was designed to carry passengers up and down the east coast of the United States. So the ship did that for several years, and then it was transferred to the west coast to go up and down that part of the country. And on January 20th, 1906, the SS Valencia departed from San Francisco and headed north toward Canada. The weather turned sour, and the crew couldn't navigate, couldn't navigate correctly, and in the early morning hours of January 21st, not far from Vancouver Island, the ship struck a reef and began to sink. She was within sight of land, a mere 100 yards from safety. But to keep her from going down, the captain ordered the ship to be run aground. So here is this vessel, pierced on the rocks, exposed to the driving wind and the freezing rain of winter. The ship was doomed. So, as you can imagine, chaos ensued on board. And as one end of the ship started to sink into the water, people are clinging to railings. And several of them tried to launch some lifeboats, but they did so improperly. Three of them flipped as they were being lowered into the water, dumping all of those people into the icy waves. Three more boats were able to get away, but two of those capsized in the rough waves, and the third one disappeared. Finally, one more lifeboat was launched, and a group of men were trying to get away from the ship to take a lifeline to the shore to help the remaining women and children to be able to get off the sinking vessel. So as these men in this lifeboat pull away from the sinking ship, they look back and saw these final survivors clinging to the railings, and they heard them singing, Nearer my God to thee. In the midst of chaos, there was calm. And I think in our text today, that's what we need to see. Because Jesus describes a whole lot of chaos, but he gives us supernatural calm in the face of it. Luke 21, we'll begin reading with verse 5 and go through the end of the chapter. Buckle up. Verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, And for those who are nursing infants in these days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day, He was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is God's word for us today. Well, I'm going to go eat some lunch. You all just figure it out. (laughs) No, (laughs) this is why God gives teachers to his church. Not because believers aren't smart enough to figure out what God is saying. And as a side note, 
Don't rely on a teacher and put them on par with the Scriptures. A teacher could be someone who preaches to you. It could be someone that you read. It could be someone you watch online. Let no one be on par with Scripture in your mind. God doesn't give teachers to His church to tell them what to think. He gives teachers to His church to help them understand what God is saying. So, God gives teachers so that you can be edified, not confused. It could be easy to be confused walking through a passage like this. So, a few observations before we jump in. This is a really significant text. You might have noticed this, but this is the last public teaching of Jesus in Luke. You could say it's Jesus' last words in public before he goes to the cross. And he's talking about really weighty stuff, destructions and catastrophes. So this is a really significant text, but it's also a really challenging text. I was thinking as I was studying this week of the picture of a box of hangers came to mind. So if you've moved or if you store hangers in a box at home, you've probably had this experience where you go to grab one hanger and pull it out and what happens? Three, four, or ten other hangers come with it. And it kind of feels that way with this passage. When you try to answer one question, it's like three or four or ten other questions come out with it. You try to untangle one knot, and you realize there's about five or six other knots that you have to untangle. So, this is a challenging text, and wise and godly people disagree on how to interpret this text. Uh, Jesus seems to be talking about a historical event, the destruction of Jerusalem. But then, some of his comments seem to go beyond that. So is he talking about one event? Is he talking about multiple events? And then he's talking to or about multiple people. You, 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 you are a part of this, but then also they and those are a part of this. So there's a distinction between who he's talking about. And then there's this famous statement in verse 32 where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Ooh. Okay, so did all of this stuff that he's talking about happen in the, the lifetime of the people that he was talking to? If not, then did Jesus misspeak? Did he mess up? Or is it that the word generation that he uses here doesn't mean the same as what we might naturally or typically think? There's a lot of questions. So wise and godly people disagree on how to interpret this text. So what does that mean for us? We should be humble about what we conclude from this text. Jesus doesn't say everything. And he doesn't lay it out all nice and neatly, like step one, step two, step three, step four, in this nice little fashion. So, I'm going to present a conclusion to you, which is rooted in the text, but you might disagree with me. And I might disagree with myself in a year. I mean, the future things are things that we study, that we try to understand, 
But the very fact that they're in the future means we don't know exactly how they're going to play out. We try to look at Scripture and even piece things together from Scripture, but ultimately it comes down to let's draw a conclusion and hold it humbly. So, that's what we're going to do this morning. And here's my big idea for you. In the midst of upheaval, look for Jesus. In the midst of upheaval, look for Jesus. Now, partially because this text is so challenging and because it's so long, we're going to take two weeks to go through it. I'm going to make one pass through, kind of fly over, and we're going to talk about what. What is Jesus saying? We're going to try to make sense of what he's talking about as we go through it this week. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll ask why. Why did he say this? Why does it matter to us? How should it change us? So that's our plan for these next couple of weeks. Before we jump in, let me try to give you a flyover and set the stage a little bit. As you can see, if you picked up one of the handouts as you came in this morning, I've given you an outline today. I haven't done that before, but I thought it might be helpful to give you some sense of structure and direction. Some of you are more visual, and that might help you. Some of you like to write, and that helps you to process, so maybe you've got an option to to take down some notes there. Hopefully that will serve you. And if not, disregard it. It's not a big deal. So here's our three headers, the things I've, I've chosen to try to break up our passage. First, verses 5 through 9, two cautions. Second, verses 10 to 24, words about an end. And then verses 25 to 38, words about the end. So it seems pretty clear that Jesus is talking about two different events in this passage. And as we go through this, we're going to do some spade work. We're going to do some digging this week. So it's going to take some brain sweat. Try to hang with me. I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible and hopefully as interesting as possible, but I also want to just state what he's saying. So try to hang with me and hopefully that'll pay off next week a little more as we revisit this text. It seems pretty clear that Jesus is talking about two different ends or catastrophes. The end of Jerusalem and the end of the age. But the confusing thing is that Jesus uses really similar terminology for both of them. So sometimes it's hard to distinguish which one he's talking about. and You can't always pull them apart. And I frankly think that that's on purpose. I think he's doing that intentionally because there are very similar things happening in this end and at the end. I think he's making one point, one cataclysm foreshadows the coming one. And doesn't merely foreshadow it, but it actually, his words are fulfilled in this first cataclysm and in the second cataclysm. So, Think of it this way. Think of wedding vows. So you all have either been to, you've probably seen a wedding or participated in a wedding in some way. The groom and the bride make vows to each other. They make promises to each other. And let's just take it from the, from the guy's side. 
A man promises a woman to love her and care for her through sickness and in health. And then, day after day, his words are fulfilled as he keeps his vows. So think of it this way. He fulfills his words by taking care of her when she's sick. He fulfills his vows another day when he takes care of her when she's discouraged. He fulfills his vows another day when he sticks with her even when his affection is not as high as he would like it to be. But then he finally gets to the end when she's on her deathbed and he fully and finally fulfills his vows to her in the end. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with these words here. He talks about Jerusalem and he talks about the end, but he says that his words are fulfilled here and fully and finally here. There are events like this in the Bible. So think of the Exodus. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know the Exodus was that great deliverance of God, of his people, out of Egypt from slavery. Then, months and months ago, you remember coming through Luke, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, who shows up to talk to him? Moses and Elijah. And Luke says that they discussed with him his departure. His, the word is, exodus, which would happen in Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because... What Jesus did in Jerusalem when he died on the cross and then rose from the tomb was to accomplish a greater exodus, delivering people from every tribe and nation out of the bondage of sin. So you have an exodus where Moses draws the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, and you have the exodus where Jesus draws people out of sin by his death and his resurrection. You have an exodus, and you have the exodus. Here's another example. And for this, I want you to turn to one of the Old Testament prophets so you can see this with me. The day of the Lord, the prophet Joel. So this is one of those 12 minor prophets that are kind of hard to find toward the end of your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, all those guys. Joel, and when this prophet is talking to the people of God, he is discussing this huge event that happens. It's an invasion of locusts. Maybe some of you have seen this at times, where locusts just sweep through an area and eat everything green in their path. Apparently, this is what happened to the people of God because of their sin. God sent this plague of locusts that just swept through the land and ate up all their harvest. And look how this plague is described. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Joel 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. So this This plague of locusts is God's army. He's bringing it to punish his disobedient people. And how is it described when these locusts fly through? The sun is darkened. The earth seems to shake as they're moving across it. This is apocalyptic, catastrophic kind of language. 
Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So it seems as though Joel is saying this plague of locusts is a day of the Lord. It is a judgment of God on his people. And it's described in this crazy, catastrophic language. Turn over now to Joel 3, verse 14. Joel 3, 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Okay, so really similar imagery. Imagery. The sun is dark. Things are happening in the sky. It's catastrophe. But what's happening here? Well, in this chapter, God is judging the nations, and there's this end time conflict between nations. So you've got a day of the Lord, where these locusts invade the people of God, and then you've got a future, the day of the Lord, at the end times. So back to our text in Luke. I think we find something really similar here. You've got an end to the city of Jerusalem, and you've got the end, the end of time. But Jerusalem's end is basically a picture of and encompasses the same things as the end. And I think that's why Jesus can say in verse 32, This generation will not pass away until all is fulfilled. I think what he's saying is, the people living during my time will not pass away until everything I've said lands on Jerusalem and it is destroyed. But that very destruction is a picture of the end destruction. They're going to see the end in miniature. It's kind of like visiting the Eiffel Tower, but not the real one, the one in Las Vegas. So some of you know this. There is an Eiffel Tower in Las Vegas, which is half the size of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. But when they built it in Las Vegas, they actually got permission from the mayor of Paris to replicate some of the very minute details, even down to paint chips on the original Eiffel Tower. So you could go to Las Vegas and say, I have seen the Eiffel Tower. Because that's it. Although it's only a replica of it. You've seen the Eiffel Tower. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing. When you, when this generation sees the destruction of Jerusalem, they are seeing the end in miniature. So, let's dive in and we're going to skip across the surface of the text. So don't get too excited or too worried. I spent a lot of time leading up to that and setting the stage. I know. We're going to come back to this next week. But I at least want to Skip across the top of the text uh, today. So, first header, two cautions. What's the setting? 
Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And what did he do? He cast out all the people that were selling stuff in the courtyard of the temple. And now he's just coming back day after day and he's teaching. Well, apparently at some point, some of his listeners, whether it's the bigger crowd or whether it's his disciples, they all, they all of a sudden start to get distracted. And they're just looking around at this amazing building that they're in. And they start talking about the stones and the ornamentation and all the stuff that's around. And frankly, it would have been amazing. This temple was one of the wonders of the world at this time because of how King Herod had constructed it. Go do some research sometime. The stones in the foundation themselves are tons. They weigh tons. It's incredible what was done with this building. So they're looking around at how amazing this place is, and Jesus says, hold on, you're getting distracted. There's coming a time when not one of these stones is going to stand. They're all going to be thrown down. Well, to the people of this day, to hear that this building would be destroyed would feel like the end of the world. And so they say, when is it going to happen? And how are we going to know when it's getting close? And isn't that what we want to know? When is the end going to happen? And how are we going to know when it's getting close? This is our human tendency. But what does Jesus do in his answer? First, he, he doesn't even answer the when question. He doesn't tell them when the temple is going to be destroyed. And he doesn't tell us when the end is going to be. So I think we should not be consumed with timelines and predictions. Because he didn't tell us when. Another observation is that he warns us about some pitfalls. Before he starts talking about the future, he says, you guys need to be cautious about a couple of things. And so what does he say? First, verse 8, don't be tricked. Don't be tricked. Why? In verse 8, he says, see that you are not led astray. It's going to be easy for you to get distracted. It's going to be easy for you to get hoodwinked. It's going to be easy for you to swallow the stories that get passed around on Facebook. Don't be tricked. Why? Because many are going to come in my name. Many imposters are going to show up and they're going to say, I am he. Now we might sit here and say, oh, you know what? We're not going to get caught by that kind of a trick. If somebody says, I'm Jesus, we're not going to believe that. Well, how about the second thing he says? Many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Maybe that one hits a little closer to home. Because don't people start to put pieces together? Aren't there always end times experts who pull different passages of the Bible together and try to make them fit and then say, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that? That means it's really close. That means he's almost here. Jesus tells us, don't believe the imposters and don't go after predictors. Don't be tricked. What's the second thing he warns us about? Verse 9, don't be terrified. Why would we be terrified? Well, he says, when you hear of wars and tumults, you're going to hear about riots, you're going to hear about revolts. 
You're going to hear about invasions. Don't be terrified. And friends, aren't these our two greatest struggles when we look into the future? We don't know what's going on, and so we get scared. Or we really want to know what's going on, and so we start pursuing stuff, and we get tricked. He says, don't get tricked, and don't be terrified. And we'll come back to more of the reason why in a moment. But we move into our second header where I think Jesus begins to expand on what he just said about wars and tumults. So our second header, words about an end. He says, you're going to hear about upheaval, verses 10 and 11. So what are these wars and tumults? Well, how about some political chaos? You've got nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then you've got not just political chaos, you've got natural disasters. Verse 11, there's these great earthquakes, famines, pestilences, or plagues. And then you've got fearful events. Look at what he says next. Terrors. That's something unusual which causes fear. We don't understand that and it makes us really nervous. Terrors and great signs from heaven. Things which seem supernatural. Things which are disturbances. So, you're going to hear about upheaval, he says. But don't be terrified. But Jesus goes back a little bit and he says, in verses 12 through 19, you're also going to face persecution. Even before all this upheaval starts, you're going to face hard stuff. And this is where there's a lot of repetition about you. You, followers of mine, you are going to face this stuff. You're going to be persecuted by whom? By governments and authorities. I mean, look at verses 12 through 15, just kind of the bullets that he, that he gives us here. They're going to lay hands on you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to deliver you up to synagogues, basically drag you in front of courts. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to take you before kings and governors before the powerful authorities of the day. That doesn't sound very nice. But it gets worse. You're going to be persecuted not just by the governments, you're going to be persecuted by, verse 16, your own family. You're going to be delivered up or betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Those who are nearest and dearest to you are going to turn you over. And you're going to be hated by all. You're going to be the unpopular ones. Those who are considered behind the times. Those who are considered backward. Those who are considered bigoted. You're going to be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. You shouldn't be hated because you're weird or because you're obnoxious. You're going to be hated because... You follow Jesus. So you're going to be persecuted and some of you may even be killed. Verse 16, you're going to be put to death. But what are you supposed to remember when all this stuff happens? When you are getting persecuted as a follower of Christ, when you see upheaval in the world around you, political chaos and natural disasters and things like that, what are you supposed to remember? Go back up to verse 9. He said, don't be terrified when you see wars and tumults. 
For these things must first take place. Does that word must sound familiar? Throughout Luke, we've been seeing the divine must. God has a plan and he's going to carry it out. And part of his plan is that his people will be persecuted and that there will be upheaval in the world around them. God is in control. So you don't have to be terrified when you see this stuff happening around you. You've probably seen advertisements for these newer cars that have auto drive and even auto park where the driver can take their hands off the wheel and the thing just keeps going or even redirects itself and parks. And I think sometimes it can be easy for us to think about God as that kind of a driver. He's taken his hands off the wheel, but this car isn't working very well, and it's really chaotic, and we feel like we're about to crash, and we really wish God would put his hands back on the wheel. Friends, God is driving the car. He's in charge. He's got his hands on the wheel. It's not out of control in the midst of all the chaos. It is not out of control. To use a different picture, the train may feel like it's going to fly off the tracks. It's trucking along really fast, and we've got curves coming up, and we've got a bridge we've got to cross, and we're afraid this thing's just going to go off the rails, and we're going to fly into oblivion. But the conductor is in control. These things must take place. And Jesus says, they must take place, back down in verse 9, but the end will not be at once. So guess what? All these persecutions and all these political upheavals and natural disasters, they aren't even the sign that Jesus is near. They're just par for the course for this whole period of time from after he went to heaven until he comes back in these last days, which is what the New Testament calls from the time he went to heaven to the time he comes back, these last days, all through that time, we're going to have political upheaval and chaos and persecution and natural disasters. It's just par for the course. And so, this is what's going on in these last days. But I think for us, it's easy for us to feel like we start observing all this stuff and we start to think it's got to be close. It's got to be here. It's got to be in our day. And that may not be wrong, but I think there's two reasons that we think that way. One is we live in an age of technology. When we hear about everything that happens, we today hear about stuff that people a couple generations ago would never have heard about in their world. We hear about fires in Hawaii. We hear about war in Ukraine. We hear about government overthrow in Africa. We hear about weird objects up in the sky. And we can start to think, this is it. Jesus is here. But let's remember that these are the kinds of things that have been going on ever since Jesus went back to heaven. I think we just hear about it more now because we have technology. And second, I think we feel this way because we live in a country of freedom. For a long time, we in our country have been extremely blessed 
to be sheltered from, a lot of the stuff that our brothers and sisters have experienced all through church history and even in many other places today. And when we start to feel a little bit of pushback from our community, from our policies, from our governments, from the, the, so, the society around us, then we start to think, oh, now it's happening. Now it must be time. When it's been happening like this for thousands of years. So I'm not saying, please don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying, oh, Jesus isn't coming back for another 2,000 years. I don't know when. That's the point. We don't know when. So he tells his followers, Jesus tells his followers, they're going to suffer persecution. They're going to see upheaval. But the end may not be at once. This is par for the course. And now he turns specifically to an end. Jerusalem will fall. Verses 20 to 24. And what does Jesus say to these people in his generation? When you start to see enemies surround the city, get out. Get out. Run away. And toward the end of the 60s AD, from about 66 to 70, the Roman Empire started to come into Israel and started to encompass Jerusalem. And there were multiple times when the Roman Empire was coming into the city and starting to clamp down. And finally, in 70 AD, the city was leveled. But it was several years when these armies started to encircle and started to get closer and closer to this destruction. And Jesus is saying, when you see that happening, get out. I mean, it's natural for people outside of a city to want to run to the city that has walls for refuge. That's just normal. I don't want to be out here in my little hut Let's go to the city where there's walls. And Jesus says, don't do it. Go the opposite way. Get out to the mountains. Flee. Why? Verse 22, because God's wrath is falling. These are days of vengeance, he says. Verse 23, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, the people of Israel. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. You remember just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And he sees the city laid out before him and he sobs because these are the leaders, these are the people who have rejected him. And now he's saying, wrath for that rejection is going to fall. And in verse 22, he says, it is to fulfill all that is written. In case you missed it the first time, he's got a plan and he's going to fulfill everything he planned. Until, and then he repeats it again, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Once again, God has a plan for history. For a period of that history, he focused on the nation of Israel. And then for a period of history, he's designed that there's a focus on the Gentiles, the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. History is not just aimlessly wandering around. History is driving in the direction God wants it to go. And so Jesus has described Jerusalem's fall in this 
apocalyptic language, earth-shattering images and events. And now, he turns to the end. Words about the end, verses 25 to 38. Now first, we need to figure out what is the end. What do we mean? What's happening at the end? Look at verse 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. At the end, the King returns. The judge comes. But it's not just that the king is coming to judge. What else happens at the end? Verse 31. Jesus tells this little, he gives us this little picture of a tree. When the leaves come out in the spring, you know summer's coming. And in the same way, when all these terrible things are happening, get ready because what's drawing near? Verse 28. Your redemption is drawing near. Your rescue, your time of deliverance. All the persecution will be over. All the uncertainty and fear will be gone. Our Lord will deliver us from evil and he will never be apart from us again. So the end is when the Son of Man comes. The end is when our redemption, our rescue comes. And third, verse 31 He says the kingdom of God is near when you see these things. Now you know there's been this emphasis in Luke about the kingdom of God. And Luke has said, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying it's here. God's reign is at work in the hearts of people now. But we're also waiting for the final arrival of the kingdom of God when God sets up his reign over all the earth. So what is the end? The Son of Man comes, our rescue comes, and the kingdom of God is set up forever. That is the end. So now how does Jesus describe what leads up to that end? Well, it's really similar to what he said earlier about the end of Jerusalem. Look down at verse 25. We've got these fearful events. Signs in sun and moon and stars. We've got political chaos. On the earth, there is distress of nations in perplexity. Nations are in confusion. What's going on? Third, there's natural disasters. You've got the roaring of the sea and the waves. And then verse 26, you've got this paralyzing uncertainty. People are fainting with fear and foreboding of what's coming on the world. I mean, it sounds really similar to what he said would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. An end, the end. This is the end because the one who went away is now the one who is returning. So what does Jesus tell his followers about how they should think as we look toward the end? I'm just touching on this really quickly. We'll come back to this next week. Two things. Look up and stay awake. Stay awake. (laughs) Look up and stay awake. He says, first of all, verse 28, look up. When you see these things, straighten up and raise your heads. I love that image. It gets really practical. Straighten up, 
It's like you've been so consumed with all the stuff that's going on around you, the cares of this life, the things that are happening. And he says, straighten up and raise your head. Alert. Pay attention. Look. Look up. And what's the second thing he says? He says, stay awake in verses 34 through 36. Verse 35, he says, that day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Everyone is going to see the end. Everyone who's on the earth is going to see when the Son of Man comes, he rescues his people, and his kingdom is set up. So how should believers look toward that day? What does he say in verse 36? Pray. This is how you stay awake. Pray that you may have strength to escape or to avoid all of these things. Believers are going to hear about these events. We're going to see these terrible things that are happening, and we need to pray that we have strength to persevere through them and to get to the point when we can stand before the Son of Man who comes back. So brothers and sisters, there is chaos. There is upheaval in our world. There is hostility toward followers of Christ. There are mysterious things happening which we cannot explain. But in one sense, these are par for the course ever since Jesus went back to heaven. They may be intensifying. They may be getting greater and greater. And it could be that he is very near. But no matter what season of time, no matter what generation is on the earth, Jesus says, believers, you're supposed to do the same thing. You're supposed to look up and be alert you're supposed to pray that you have strength to get through what's coming. Because our ultimate goal is to stand before the Son of Man and not be swept away by the judgment that He brings. So I will reiterate what Jesus said at the beginning. Don't be tricked. Don't go after things that seem plausible, that seem like, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Don't be tricked. And also, don't be terrified. The God who has planned all this out is in control. The conductor has his hands on the controls and he knows what he's doing. So trust him, stay alert, and pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be faithful to you and to your words that you've given to us. So I pray that you would help us to take your words and to heed them. Help us to be a people who are alert. Help us to be a people who are looking up. Help us to be a people who are not terrified, who are not fearful, who are not anxious, but people who are trusting you and who are praying to you. Give us confidence in your sovereign control over all things. Give us confidence that you're doing exactly what you want to do. So help our hearts to trust and to rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.